everybody welcome back to another episode of the music biz weekly podcast you got your two co-hosts michael brandvold and jay gilbert how you doing jay is it a little Great, warmer michael. this week a little little bit warmer it's you still you got know, your hat on stocking cap yeah on. yeah you know you, you know like we said last week if it starts dipping below 70 man i'm bundling up yeah <laughs> well what up here in the bay area what was it, it it's turned out to not be a real quote but mark twain's quote about the you know what the the, the oldest summer the, i ever spent is was in san francisco something like that or the coldest winter i spent was a summer in san francisco something, or something like, like that, that. exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> you know now that summer's approaching here we're starting to bundle up and get cold and you know september october we'll be like yes now it's finally warm yeah, it, yeah. it's crazy climate stuff yep um before we get to uh this week's amazing guest it's a little off topic if you're a musical history buff you're gonna love this mm -hmm. and let's be honest if you're in the music business you better be a little bit interested in the history of music <laughs> yeah <laughs> um quick shout out thank you to hypebot and bands in town for everything you do to continue to support us and of course um bandzoogle.com built by musicians for musicians bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it so easy to build a beautiful website and epk for your music bandzoogle powers the websites for tens of thousands of musicians around the world from weekend warriors to Grammy winners, all the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription services, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and of course, amazing live tech support from their musician friendly team seven days a week yep. we got a great offer for our listeners head over to bandzoogle.com sign up and try it for free for 30 days and when you register use the promo code this is all one word now music biz weekly and you'll get 15 percent off the first year of any subscription and of course, thank you to discmakers.com. We know it's a digital world, but there's still an important role for physical media for today's independent musicians. Digital royalty payments can be so small that selling products like CD, vinyl, t-shirts, online and at gigs has become such an important income generator. For every CD you sell at a gig or online, you'd need roughly 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money, and that's a lot of streams. Mm -hmm. Our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even T-shirts. Head over to discmakers.com, place an order for 100 or more CDs, and when you check out, use the promo code FREEBIZ, and you will save up to $150 in shipping. Nice. So, Jay, we are joined by the legendary music critic, writer, yeah. author, Joel Selvin. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. You know, we, we've been big fans of this guy for a long time. Um, he was the music critic at the San Francisco Chronicle from 1972 to 2009. But he's written over 20 books on the music industry and this new book, 
I, I'm telling you, um, you got to get this book. It is a fantastic read. It's called Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. Yeah. Sit back, enjoy a little bit of musical history in this week's Music Biz Weekly Podcast. Build a stunning band website in minutes with Banzoogle. Go to Banzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. We are excited uh, for our guest today. We have Joel Selvin, uh, who uh, I remember from my days living in San Francisco, um, being the music critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, which he was for many, many years. He's got a new book out uh, called Hollywood Eden, uh, which is a, a fantastic read. And we're going to dig into that in a second. But uh, Joel, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be here, wherever mm -hmm. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? Are you in the Bay Area still? Oh, yeah. Petrero Hill is sort of in the middle of San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yep. Yeah. I used there to live not too a, far from a, there. A neighborhood that has a lot of proximity to uh, uh, downtown San Francisco, so it has views, but it doesn't have really much going on. And so uh, they used to shoot a lot of uh, streets of San Francisco up here. Yeah. And, and I remember watching MC... Uh, you know, inspectors uh, Stone and and um, Douglas uh, uh, cruising around Petrero Hill, take a left turn. They'd be in the Marina District now. I know. Where is that shortcut? I've been looking for that. <laughs> I know. I, I I do the same thing when I'm watching movies uh, or TV shows in San Francisco. I'm like, how did like Nash Bridges go across the Golden Gate Bridge and end up on Treasure Island? <laughs> they were particularly bad at this, as I recollect, but um, yeah. And everybody remembers the guy driving to Berkeley on the wrong way of the uh, Bay Bridge and the Graduate. It's, 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 that's what, that's, that's the liberties you can take when you're filming a movie, right? <laughs> so Joel, when you're driving in San Francisco, do your wheels all leave the ground like that? Yeah. We, we, you know, I stopped drinking a long time ago. Oh, okay. But, we, but, you know, but we've all had our bullet runs. Yeah, I was going to say, every, everybody who lives in San Francisco recreates bullet at least once. <laughs> <laughs> or tries to. <laughs> Joel, I got I to gotta tell you, I, first of all, it's an honor to talk to you. You know, I've been reading your work for so many years, and there's you've written so many books i think i was checking there's like over 20 different books on everything from you know the rolling stones and burt burns and grateful dead and monterey pop and i'm just all of these sammy hagar things. sammy hagar who were you know big fan of and i don't know where you get all of the time but it seems like this this new book that you've read or read written is there's a lot to it. And I didn't have any idea that all of those stories kind of intertwined. And I found it really fascinating. This is one of those books I think you have to read more than once to really kind of get all of that. How did you unravel this complex onion layers of stories? I, I, I love that you think it's complex. Uh, it, it, to me, uh, it's a, it's a braided narrative and it starts in the university high school class of 1958 where there's this group of people 
who are going to have relations. I mean, it's like a Dickens novel in many ways. You know, the people they're going to meet, they will meet. Their destinies are all laid out before them, and they travel a path from innocence to self-knowledge. Uh, yeah, it goes from uh, singing in the showers of the uh, high school after football practice January. to uh, Brian Wilson making good vibrations. Yeah, uh, possibly the greatest pop record ever made in a course of a blindingly fast eight years. Yeah. And and to me, it's it's it, like I say, it's a braided narrative. These things keep winding together uh, without ever tying in a knot at the end. What was so special about 1958? Because you pointed out in the book, it wasn't just university. You know, it's Fairfax. It was all these other high schools. And these were, I mean, Herb Albert, Phil Spector, Jan Barry. I mean, these are like legends in the business all lined up 1958 it was almost like the perfect storm yeah i like that thought too i think i, I think i meant said something in the book about it being the perfect time and place for, to be an american teenager but uh, hollywood was a small town in 1958 there wasn't any jet travel uh california was an extremely remote place it was a unique culture and it was an especially unique culture in the post-war middle-class boom of a, of a place like Los Angeles. How small a town was it? Uh, the, there was no 405 freeway and the intersection of Sunset and Sepulveda was a four-way stop and there were crops growing on each corner and a little stand selling vegetables, okay? Wow. And the kids at University High in, in the class of 58 uh, they were uh, some of the most privileged uh, uh, kids in the country. Uh, they came from Bel Air and Brentwood, uh, and many of their parents were in the movie business or entertainment business, if not as, as actors and actresses whose names you all knew, uh, as accountants, as lawyers, as you know, prop guys, all, the, the whole range of it. So it was a very show business high school, and uh, the class of 1958 was special. They entered uh, high school in September of 1955, and that was the moment that Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets hit the charts. So these guys were the first rock and roll high school class. And by the time they had graduated, well, Jan Berry was in the top 10 before he had graduated. Yeah, yeah. And rock and roll wasn't a means to um, wealth and fame. Rock and roll was a mission. Rock and roll was a, 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 a destination. It, and, and these people that jumped on board, they, they were on some kind of classic hero's journey. Yeah. And the, the, the convergence in University High, it's, it's Jan, it's Dean, it's Nancy Sinatra, Bruce yeah. Johnston of the Beach Boys, Kim Fowley, who would go on to produce records and just be a sort of gadfly in the industry for many years. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Nelson, who was the first rock and roll star drummer. Uh, the, the girl whose father uh, wrote uh, about her time at the beach and was called Gidget, Kathy Coner. She was in that class. Gidget Crazy. was in the high school class. Joel, you, one thing you just mentioned that I really did want to bring up in our conversation here is you said rock and roll was a mission back then. And I feel like at least now in 2021, rock and roll has lost that. 
It is no longer a mission. There's nothing. It's it's all about. It seems like how do I become a rock star, a bigger rock star, and become a corporate executive and license, 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 license. Not that there's anything wrong with that in itself, but if I feel like rock and roll has lost that 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 tie to culture that it used to have where you know rock and roll used to be the protesters rock and roll was about protesting it was being a rebel it was standing up for whatever it was you 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 thought was an injustice is is that gone will that ever come back well uh, i mean that's uh how much time do we have (laughs) Uh, you know I, I, that's, that's so weighty that I don't, I don't know. There's so many uh, areas to attack that from. Uh, yeah, the cultural heft uh, went out of popular music some time ago, uh, and and it turned into an entertainment. Uh, and it it the the history of the pop music movement will record that that happened in sync with the takeover by corporate uh, uh, ownership. The, 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 the emergence of, uh, uh, the, or the disappearance of independent labels that fostered the visions of popular music, be it Motown or A&M, uh, those were eaten up by corporations and the uh, ear of the, of the guy ch- signing the checks was replaced by modern marketing methods. Uh, Procter and Gamble stuff. So uh, that happened a long time ago. You know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the I mean, you were at Universal Music, right? And and was, yeah. you, you were and Universal Music didn't exist until the corporate colom, uh, conglomerate right. the music industry had already happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it emanated out of uh, the seventies sort of collapse of DECA, CAP, and uni. They called it MCA and and, and, right. and everybody snickered cemeteries of America. Yeah. I remember back during Watergate, the, the Herbie Herbert, the great show business philosopher sure. and manager of Journey, said that if Nixon really wanted to get off, he should have given his tapes to MCA. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. What up um <laughs> hey I got a question for you guys as long as we're just freewheeling. I see Jim Steinman died, and every every yeah. obit mentions that 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 they'd gotten turned down by every single label, and that, that some wise guy said they even started labels just to turn it down. So my question to you is, how bad were those demos? Wow, I never heard the demos, but he is <laughs> such a great songwriter. But you know, every single great artist has been turned down. I mean, the Beatles were turned down. You know, I mean, there's there's always that one guy that says, "Yeah, you know, guitar bands are on the way out." I don't, I don't I'm not hearing a single. Dick know? Rowe. Uh, yeah. the, the, if you aren't offending someone, you're not doing it right. There's no exactly. question about that. Yep. That's secret. Right. The secret to success is to offend the greatest number of people. That's right. That can, that can be a pathway to success. There's no question. Uh, but it's just a matter of like, you've got to, if, if you're saying something that's strong, that's vital, uh, uh, it, it's not going to go over with everybody. You know, I did a book with L.A. Reid uh, a few years ago, and, and, and he'd been on that um, uh, X Factor show as a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was, of course, he's one of the great 
talent discoverers of 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 the 90s and 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 the you know pop pop hip hop era i mean the kids from uh uh andre and big boy uh they, they, they were high school students rapping at his desk when he said, mm, you know, come back and see me in three months. You know, I mean, L.A.'s got a good record for this. And he said that, that, that these TV shows were pointless and useless and that, that, that Madonna, Prince, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, none of those guys would have made it on the TV show. No. No, that's a great point. <laughs> yep. Yeah, or, or, you know, not everybody has that pristine voice. You know, if you listen to Tom Petty, you know, or, or some of these artists don't have that classically, you know, pop voice, but they're meaningful, you know, and they're different. And I, and I think that that's kind of what's missing with a lot of new releases. It, it all kind of sounds the same. And I know I sound like my grandfather, but we're very fortunate to grow up in an era where we had all those artists that you mentioned. Well, it was a, it was a artistic and cultural and historic wave. And uh, if you were to look at the, the, you know, histories of art movements, yeah. Uh, they all go along a, a, a certain similar sort of bell curve where the avant-garde ideas get transformed into mainstream thinking, which increases this popularity. And then at some point, the uh, uh, diminution starts as, as you get the um, uh, you know, receding effects and, and dimin diminishing effects. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, if I were looking at the history of, of, of American music and, and charting like a sort of parallel growth between black music and white music, you know, thinking of what happened to the blues and on rhythm and blues and, 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 and how it led up to a certain peak uh, and then the white side, the country and Western, the folk, the Woody Guthrie stuff, mm. uh, parallel up to another peak. I'd, I'd plant that at 1984, where Michael Jackson produces the thriller and Bruce Springsteen produces Born in the USA. And then over the hill we go and we get Bon Jovi and Bobby Brown. And now is the the all the great new ideas have been incorporated and they're mining old ideas i'm driving around with my teenage daughter and this is getting to be a while ago now and uh there's some song comes on the radio uh and and she gets really pumped up like you know wow and and, and i thought myself oh yeah you know I, I I really dug that the first thirty times I heard it too. Velvet Underground, right? No, no, this is the Strokes. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, that's we, a good we, point. We've seen this happen in our lifetimes. Sure. What What do you think would happen if Lou Reed or Neil Young were on one of those TV shows that you mentioned? Oh, you those know, talent shows. Would they even make it through the audition to get to the finals? I doubt it. Who would that you would care about and who has that you care about, right? You know, that guy Daughtry or uh, uh, the tubby one, or Ruben Stoddard or... Uh, uh, wow. I, I mean, I, I had to go see all these guys, you know, because I was a, a, a reviewer for the paper and they and they would hit and I didn't have to watch TV and I never saw the, the show but they'd come to town and they'd sell out a 3000 seat theater and there I was trying to figure out what the heck this guy's appeal is and why is he on stage and how come all these people paid for it the third time I saw Britney Spears my life flashed before my eyes 
Well, don't sugarcoat it for us. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I hear you. You know, Joel, I associate you with San Francisco. You know, I lived there for five years. Uh, absolutely loved it. Um, but, you know, this is really more of an L.A.-based thing. And I wanted to ask you, like, what differences did you see in the music scenes in San Francisco versus L.A. in the 60s and, and 70s? I spent tons of time in Los Angeles yeah. and Hollywood. I, I, I love the scene down there. And you may remember, it was only 25 bucks to fly down there. And there were five flights after midnight to come back. So, I mean, it was really easy to just go down and go bop around the whiskey and, and, and have a late night nosh at Cantor's and then head back to LAX, really. Nice. So I did that a lot all through the 70s and into the 80s uh, and, and had lots of pals down there and, you know, uh, always saw myself as California person and, and not, not sectarian San Francisco versus Los Angeles. There's a stereotypical San Francisco attitude about Los Angeles. I'm well aware of the snobbishness and the clannishness <laughs> of San Francisco. Right, so I right. helped help, you know, polish and nourish those attitudes in the paper for years. But uh, I love LA. And uh, that said, the differences have always been stark and, 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 and persistent. Los Angeles is a commercial center of show business. And San Francisco is a remote outpost. A, Robin Williams is called San Francisco a human game preserve. And, uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, everybody's always scheming for success. San Francisco, there's more about like some kind of uh, musical, social, cultural laboratory. Uh, whether it's the Grateful Dead or Metallica. Metallica was unlikely Los Angeles. Man, Chris Isaac never would have happened in Los Angeles. He would have been dismissed as a pretty boy that didn't have enough chops. Uh, and, and San Francisco was nurturing the, the, these kind of dis, disparate acts. Primus, I mean, can you imagine Primus coming from Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It, see, it, see, it seems like San Francisco was more concerned about the creativity and less about the business and the experience of doing the music and being in the lifestyle and and all that uh it, there came a point where it was sort of like you know wake up call for hippies you know hey, hey listen you know we're starving here do you want to make a couple bucks or not the uh uh classic example of that was the sons of champlin i mean nobody was more hippie than the sons of champlin they lived in teddy roosevelt's hunting lodge in, in uh, uh, larkspur they were they were just amazing and they were the best band on on any given night on the Fillmore stage credible lead guitarist extraordinary lead singer lots of good material great horn section they never mounted a squat and and, and uh they lasted for years and years. I mean, the, 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 how hippie were they? We wouldn't put their names or their pictures on their first big album for Capitol <laughs> No, we don't want any of that fame or recognition stuff. But um, 13 years in, they, they were starving and they, and, and, and they were doing anything they could to get attention because they knew they were great. They just didn't, couldn't quite figure out how to get an audience to come along. Uh, and, and they were doing a parody of a lounge act. I mean, I can still see uh, uh, Bill Champlin uh, in a suit uh, doing the swirls on the organ 
uh, uh, opening Georgia. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God. You know, like, oh, man. I get it. But, you know, he had uh... teenage kids and he was tired of being poor. He goes down, he bails on the Suns, goes down to Los Angeles, falls in with Keith Olsen. He wins a Grammy first year for songwriting with uh, George Benson or Earth, Wind and Fire, then wins a Grammy the next year for um, uh, uh, George Benson and then joined Chicago. Uh, and he hated Chicago every day he was in it, but it was half a million bucks a year. And, you know, he, he'd, he'd done his time with the Suns. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. He'd paid his artistic integrity dues. You know, there was one part of the book that you talk about kind of an odd couple and I've I've worked kind of indirectly with, uh, you know, Herb Albert's, um, you know, businesses over the years. You you talk about Lou Adler and Herb Albert, Herb Albert. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? I, I found it really fascinating. I, I, I would like to know, you know, Lou Adler is essentially an unknowable person. I, I've come to that conclusion. <laughs> Uh, it, there's just a, 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 a some place where it just gets too dark to see anymore. And wow. he, he was very forthcoming with me in, in interviews for the book uh, and, and open and charming and, and, and wonderful, but I still don't quite like get it. However, the Herb Alpert thing, yeah, it's happenstance. They, 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 they had girlfriends that knew each other and, and oh. Adler had aspirations to write songs uh where they came from it's hard to say he, he grew up in a very lower class uh, uh home with no books no music and you know he fell into the record business uh uh with herb alpert they wrote six songs together a couple of amateurs i think alpert was the first musician that adler actually met and uh they sold all six songs this is hollywood was a small town you could yeah. take your songs around and and people would listen to them and if they, they they might even buy them and they sold all the six songs and the six song they sold to a guy named bumps blackwell is kind of legendary character he uh, produced uh little richard records and and uh uh took this gospel singer sam cook out of the uh, soul stirs and made a pop star out of it and, and so that's where the revenue came blackwell. to start a and m is that right this is way before a and m it was 57 1957 gotcha. and and so th they, their first stop in the record business is they joined the sam cook crowd uh, and that's some tall cotton to fall into so adler and Sa it, 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 uh, it enters the music business with sam cook and uh then does his uh, what a, a apprenticeship and uh, uh, him and, and herb and they and they go out in the world together after Sam makes the move to RCA in the big time, uh, and they go to open up a firm, <coughs> managing and producing records. And they find Jan and Dean. And that's yeah. the beginning of that. Yeah. <coughs> you say what well, you know the relationship between those two guys. I don't know, man. Adler was a very ambitious, aggressive, and. and um, in some ways, ruthless character. And Herb Alpert is the kindest, gentlest, most sweet sort of bebop, laid back jazz guy you could imagine. Uh, and yeah, they came apart uh, suddenly and harshly 
over artistic issues. I mean, Adler left Alpert in, 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 in town while he went off to cover a Jan and Dean gig and told him to cut a track for this horrible song. Adler couldn't, uh, Alpert couldn't stand, Heart and Soul. He couldn't see himself doing it. And he went into the studio and he just didn't do it. He, he cut some jazz number and said, and that was, the, uh, that was the, all the money they had. That's, they were at the bottom of the barrel. So Adler came back to town and said, you did what? And that was the end of their partnership. And, and I'm told, they, they won't admit it, either of them now, but I'm told by uh, Reliable, and I was there when it was going on, they, they, they didn't speak and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be in the same room at the same time for years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> Albert went on to have this, you know, illustrious career as the A of A&M Records. Sure. And, and he and Jerry Moss are known as like the honest, decent guys of the record business. And A&M was a dream come true if you Legendary. were there when it was, you know, A&M and the lot was happening on Charlie Chaplin's old studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It was a fantastic thing. Yeah, they, they believed were in so the star successful. system at A&M. They did not buy other people's cast off talents. They developed mm -hmm. their own stars and they believed in you. They would back you all the way if they started with you. Well, so, you know, that, so that, that, that was when record labels would develop artists. They, well, they, they, they would they give you the time to develop. Anyway. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, A&M was always outstanding in that regard. You know, I mean, if, if it hadn't come to the attention of Jay Lasker that uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett was on the label, he would have been dropped. I mean, because I mean, they didn't even know about it uh, over at ABC. And same with Steely Dan. I mean, they were on the charts before anybody knew about it. Although that happened to um, A&M Records with the police, too. Yeah. <laughs> So many artist development stories over there from, you know, the Go-Go's and Brian Adams. And you mentioned the police. And it, I mean, the list goes the carpenters, on Carpenters, my man. Carpenters. carpenters. Oh, you know, from a yeah. garage in the San Fernando Valley with, you know, the bass player, Joe Osborne, all the way up to millions of records, a, a second franchise for the Tijuana Brass, right? Yeah. Un unbelievable well get, getting back to the book for a second there's one part that i i was aware of a lot of these bands i love a lot of these bands i didn't know sort of the backstory which made it really compelling and interesting but the one story that i didn't really know about which i found a little shocking was kind of the your background on kim fowley well, Fowley is somebody that uh, stayed in the music business a long, long time. Um, and let's just start by saying I completely believe Jackie Fox's uh, story that, that he raped her uh, her first night in the runaway. So <sighs> obviously, Fowley graduated long, long ago beyond creep status. In Hollywood Eden, he's merely, merely sort of creepy. Uh, but he's a classic Hollywood type. He has no apparent talent. He can't sing. He can't play an instrument. He can't write. There, there's no obvious thing he does, yet he gets the guy to co-write, the guy to sing. The, you know, he, he has a way of putting things together and staying in the game from the gotcha. very beginning as a high school kid. And uh, 
he never really makes hits the oil gusher, but he's always drilling in the right places. And how he braids into that story is so remarkably Hollywood, right? You know, because yeah. he's he's got his fingers on the mamas and papas, and then slip away, and then he's sitting sitting in the hotel room with Bruce Johnston playing the Beatles, the Pet Sounds Advance. I mean, it's just uh, amazing. But his true Hollywood spawn. His father was in a hundred movies and you never heard of him. Um, and his mother, she gave up early her movie career to marry well. And that's another well-known Hollywood strategy. So he was this authentic sort of spawn of Hollywood, this, this, this poisoned uh, uh, um, uh, evil guy who's, who's kind of a Fagin in this story, right? If, if, yeah. if I, my conceit is that it's a Dickens novel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you point or you paint this picture of this guy who's like, you know, an overachiever and he's he's making things happen, but he's really not a good guy. And it stood out because a lot of the people that you're talking about are so amazing and such great people. Um, one of one of the areas that I found and I really wanted to ask you about this was that era because it was the late 50s was it kind of a boys club because i see nancy sinatra in here who is phenomenal and but i'm I'm not really sensing a lot of females in this picture before i would before i would uh, uh move forward on this book i contacted jill gibson and uh uh got her to agree to cooperate because uh, that was my take on this, that there were no women in any of the stories. And I wanted women were pro, had a strictly proscribed role in the culture and in that scene. But I wanted them in the story. So I brought Jill Gibson out of the background very intentionally. Uh, she's way more than somebody's girlfriend. And she represents a lot of the struggles of women of her generation to uh, have an identity and to have a place in the game. Uh, and I also brought Nancy Sinatra out uh, of the background for the same reason. And, and, and is there another uh, rock artist, rock and roll artist with, a, with record and a career like hers that has been as absent from the retelling of the history? I don't know. I mean, that record Boots is a hugely emblematic record in terms of what sort of material women were allowed to deal with in pop music. It was a pivot point for so much of that. And mm-hmm. it was also represented a very similar parallel pivot point for Nancy Sinatra in her life, which I bring out in the book. And so these stories, I'm trying to get them into the foreground just because there were women in the world in this early 60s. They just had, they, they were shunted off into the sidelines and background and they have to be brought out if you're going to like recreate that narrative. So, the, yeah. you know, that's you know, one of the points that I really was after there was, yeah, this was a boys club and this is what it was like for women. And Jill Gibson being in, in, in the front and center of the third act is, 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 is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think it's so great that you're pulling that out so people will, you know, you're shining a, a spotlight on it. 
Um, Joel, we could talk to you for hours, and, and I hope we can talk again, but I, I do want to just make sure that we mention to everyone the book, because I, I love kind of the, the full title, Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. I can't tell you how much I, I love this book. I rarely Thank read you. a book twice, but I have to read this book twice because in the end of the book, and I wish this would have been at the front of the book, you created like a playlist. And what I wanna do is have the playlist. And then as I'm reading, I can kind of right. experience Listen. the music. Well, that playlist is up on Spotify. You can just dial up Hollywood Eden on Spotify and, and there's three and a half hours of, 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 so of good. musical spine of the book. Man. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting to listen to because they're not all great records and they don't all hold up. But in the chronology that you, you, you hear it spill out, you, you can feel the development of this whole scene and the sound and, and you, can, you can sense the mm -hmm. growing confidence that will eventually reach a point where Brian Wilson makes good vibrations. And, and it is a product of this community. It is, it is this whole thing that urged everybody forward. You know, what they say about, you know, when the water rises, all the boats float. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just so crazy to me that all of that really came out of uh, a graduating class of 1958. I mean, so much. I was blown away at, at the level of talent. I mean, these names are iconic today. But so, Joel, where can people get the book? Where can they learn more about it? Where can they, you know, well, we're coming out of uh, our, our shelves these days, so your local independent bookstore should definitely be the first place to stop, although it's widely available on the internet, and you know where to go for that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, this is a this is an exciting book for me. Uh, it, it 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 all my books uh, have a steep learning curve, and and this one has benefited from, like you say. Uh, I think I've I've written twelve books now since I left the paper uh, in in two thousand and nine, and and wow. it's been scribble it's been scribble scribble scribble. I tell you, <laughs> it's just, it's it's really great stuff, Joel. And and listen, much success to you in the book. Um, I will be shouting it from the rooftops to anybody who will listen. It's just such an honor to chat with you today. Oh, Thanks what's so fun, much for you guys? Us. Thank you so fun. much, Joel. Good All to right, see you. Real honor. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a great day, Joel. Bye. Discmakers.com. Use code FREEBIZ for ground shipping on CD orders of 100 units or more, $150 value. That's the type of guest I love. And, you know, we get more, I get more of those guests in my Three Sides of the Coin Kiss podcast, but yeah. I can just sit back. Oh. And listen to those stories all day, all day long. And, you know, you, you might sit back and you go, well, you're not interested. You're just sitting back. No, trust me. This is like, I'm, I take it all in. I absorb it. I mean, as I'm, as I'm listening to him talk, I'm like, damn COVID. Cause I'd like a Joel Salvin speaking to her. Yeah. You know, go out speak for an hour and a half, share the stories, share, just talk rock and roll. That stuff is fascinating because as you said, it's like, especially here, 
this all goes back to the class of 1958. That yeah. just makes your head go, what? Yeah. How did this lead to everything we're at today? Yeah, basically in one city, four or five high schools, and all of this incredible talent that we're still talking about today. And I love that Joel lived it. He's met a lot of these people. He's worked with a lot of these people. And, you know, you live in the Bay Area. I was only there five years, but he was an institution. Oh, I mean, yeah. you didn't read the San Francisco Chronicle without it's, reading it's, Joel's it's, it's, column. It's, it's, his, his name is known and respected all throughout the Bay Area, for sure. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know. The one thing I love about the Bay Area music scene is I, I've said this to people because there's a lot of musicians here. You just don't know because it's not all about flaunting that celebrity up here as it is or was down in LA. You know, when you're in LA, yeah, you want to be famous. You want to be recognized. You want the paparazzi. Mm -hmm. You want to be noticed. You want to be noticed. You come up here and you're in Marin County up here and you can go hang out in Mill Valley. You'd be surprised the people that will just be strolling down the sidewalk and you go, is that, was that? Yeah because they, they, they live here because, because of that, you know, yeah. it's, it's a different climate than what was in LA. Absolutely. As, 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 as Joel addressed, I mean, it yeah. wasn't about becoming a rock star here. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure they they don't complain about it. You know, the guys in journey and grateful dead aren't going to complain about it, but that's why they were here. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really great book. Highly recommend it. And what a great guest. Yep, Fantastic. for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely go out, get Joel's book. Um, before we wrap up, just a quick shout out to Hypebot and Bands in Town. And, of course, our sponsors, Bandzoogle.com and Discmakers.com. Thank you so much. If you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Follow us on Spotify subscribe on iTunes, and you can now check us out on Twitch. So follow us on Twitch. We'll live stream there as well. Um, that's it. We'll have another episode for you tomorrow.